The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing? Grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1. Um, but I have a slew of announcements I need to go through. So as you're turning there, if you would just give me your attention for a minute. Um, junior high rafting trip, Friday, July 31st. This is the last week to sign up for that. You can do that online at heritagefellowship.net or you can do that at the information table back there. They can help you with that. Junior high rafting trip, Friday, July 31st. Um, also, the next two weeks is sort of a blessing and a curse a little bit. It's one of those things you just have to go through when you don't own your own facility. Um, some of you have been around for a while, you know how it works, but um, they do the floor treatment here on the gym floor for about two weeks every summer. And that starts tomorrow. You'll notice they've already tarped some things off. So for the next two Sundays, we will be meeting outside, which is actually kind of fun. We have our little things set up there in the breezeway out there. Um, so just giving you guys a heads up, the next two weeks, Sunday services will be outdoor there. The next two weeks, Wednesday night services will be in the hub there in our new kind of mini sanctuary over there, which we're excited about. I think you'll really like that over there. So just giving you guys a heads up on that. Um, baptisms, August 9th, during one of the outdoor services, we will be doing baptisms. You should have gotten a little uh, leaflet, I think, a little blue thing as you came in. Um, if you or m- maybe one of your children or something are, are interested in being baptism, baptismed, <laughs> and I'm Baptist by, you know, upbringing, um, if, if you're interested in being baptismed, just fill that out and we'll get a hold of you. Um, also, this is a, a happy, sad kind of thing. Um, this Friday at 1 o'clock at the Veranda Park, it's a, a, a retirement facility, assisted living facility, kind of at the base of McAndrews Hill. Those of you guys that, that like to park there off McAndrews and walk McAndrews Hill, you basically park right there at Veranda Park. Um, this Friday at 1 o'clock will be the memorial service for Don Nissen. Um, we're going to be hosting it over there. I'll be doing the uh, memorial service. And he was such a loved part of our congregation. I know a lot of you guys wanted to know about that. So Friday at 1, those of you that are available, we would love to have a good turnout there to support Dorothy and uh, um, just celebrate God's grace in Don's life. So that'll be this Friday at 1 o'clock. Um, and then finally, marriage retreat. Um, we got an opportunity this year to do a joint effort marriage retreat with Randy Young of Living Waters Counseling. He's a, a Christian family counselor and therapist in town that it's a friend of mine I've had the privilege of working with on some stuff. And, and we're going to be doing a marriage retreat together in August. Uh, the date's not on my announcement. I think it's the very end of August, like the last weekend of August or something like that, if I'm not mistaken, um, at Paradise Point, the same place where we hosted our family camp this year. So it's a a joint effort between Adventure Whitewater, ourselves, and Living Waters Counseling. So um, it's going to be a great opportunity because we'll take you through the Whitewater, watch how your marriages are strained by the fear going through Dragon's Tooth and stuff, and then we'll deal with that stuff when we get back to camp later that day. So um, no, it's actually going to be a great time. We're going to spend some time talking through some, um, some really important foundational things in marriage, but also just having a lot of downtime to just enjoy the area. There's going to be a, a movie date night by the shore of the Klamath River one night outside. It's just going to be a great, great time. So uh, mark your calendars, see the info on our website, or pick up a flyer at the information desk on your way out. That's coming up at the end of August. And then one last thing. Um, I told you guys last week the good news that we have um, expanded our staff by uh, one and soon to be two uh, pastors here at our church, which is fantastic. We're still in the um, search, though we, we've got some, a person of interest. So be praying for us as we work through some things with someone for the junior high pastor position that we're really excited about. But um, we have filled our executive pastor position here at the church, and we have done it. I'm really thankful because... Um, 
we were able to hire from within for this. And, and for a position like this, I think that's a really good thing because um, as it plays out and as we get things up to speed and make some of the transitions, this guy will in many ways run the affairs of the church, if you will. And so I think it's good that it's someone that's been with us for a long time, that understands what we're about, understands, knows, and loves the people, um, and already has a heart for the people before coming in to deal with, let's say, the business end of things. Because um, a position like this, it could be a temptation to get drawn only into like an, a business administrative type of a role and, um, and forget the heart part of it. But we've been blessed. We hired a pastor who has incredible giftings administratively. And so, um, so you guys know him, many of you. His name's Aaron Beamish. And uh, Aaron is currently the operations manager of Ashland Community Hospital. And so it was a big deal for Aaron and his family to make this kind of uh, transition. Um, and I'll tell you too, from my standpoint, um, it was one we did not move into quickly because the last thing in the world I wanted to do was hire him away from such a great job. I mean, he runs the whole hospital essentially. And um, to hire him away from that into a really difficult position and have him a couple years later, he or his family bitter or angry at the church, feeling like, what did we get ourselves into or anything like that? So we have been actually talking with Aaron for, gosh, Aaron, well over a month probably, right? Two months, I guess. Um, but it, it became really clear as we worked through all this stuff that the Lord was doing a work. In fact, you may remember, we went a couple of months ago to a Acts 29 workshop on financial management and financial responsibility and all those things. Some of you guys remember us going to that. Aaron had just become a board member at Heritage, and so he came with us as part of our team. And having no idea that this was going on, this guy up there is lecturing about um, executive leadership in the church, and his name's Chris Speeton. He ends up being the executive pastor from up in Washington that we brought down a few weeks back to do an assessment here and do some training here at our church. Well, he's there lecturing about um, just the business and responsibility and the call of God on organizational leadership in the church. And I had no idea, but here's Aaron sitting there the whole time thinking, man, I would love to be able to use my gifts that the Lord's given me to do what that guy does. So then we end up bringing Chris down. Chris comes, works with our staff, does a full assessment of the church, puts together this whole thing saying, if I were you guys, this is the position you need to fill, and this is the role he needs to fill, and here's what his job description should look like, and here's how I can help you train him, and puts this whole thing together. And so then I come to the board meeting with the board of directors to kind of give the report of how all that turned out, and Aaron goes, so how do you find that guy? And I just completely joking was just like, well, we're going to talk to you first, ha, ha, ha. And then we're going to, and Aaron was like, yeah, I'd like to talk to you guys about that. And we're like, excuse me? <laughs> and, and so unbeknownst to us, here's Aaron getting lectured by the guy that is going to end up being the guy who trains Aaron to do this thing. The Lord was just doing a work the entire time, and we, it's just been awesome to see what God's doing. So right now, Aaron is uh, transitioning out from Ashland Community Hospital. He'll be doing that for about a month. Um, pray for him and his family during that. Um, pray that Satan is not able to mess things up because we want him to be able to transition really smoothly and be a great witness for the people there as he makes the move here. Um, but also, you guys know, man, when you step out to follow the Lord, attacks can come too. So if you would, pray for his family. He's going to have to deal with me, so pray for him, all of those things. But Aaron, we are, could not be more excited to get you on staff, man. It's going to be great having you uh, on board. Amen? Amen. We're excited about that. So, uh, 
So when, he, uh, when, when it's actually official that he is, so to speak, on staff, we'll have him up here and, and we'll do, if you will, an ordination type thing and pray for him. I just wanted to let you guys know, if you know Aaron, man, give him a hug, tell him I'll be praying for you, and uh, let's just support them as best we can. So um, I think that's it. Did I forget anything, Kathy? Are we good? I think we're good. All right. Um, I forgot Kathy's birthday earlier in the, early in the week. We could talk about that, but we, we won't. Um, no, I mean, I didn't forget the birthday. It just wasn't in the announcements. We remember the birthday. Um, but let's go to Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 23. Have you guys seen the weather? It's going to be hot this week. Did you see this? Um, I think it's Wednesday that I saw, 107 or 108, something like that. Did you guys see that? But today, 82. Beautiful, gorgeous. So, so today's one of those days that it's nice to get outside today. Enjoy it. Take a breath of that fresh air. Enjoy the gorgeous weather we have because the heat's coming. And it's, it's nice to be able to enjoy God's blessings and have some experiences like that to carry you through difficult seasons, right? Well, that's kind of what this passage is about. There's some things in this text that it's really important for us to get down. Like, when I was even studying this, I'll be honest with you, when I first looked at it, when I first opened the text up, I was thinking to myself, man, how am I going to pull a whole sermon out of here? I feel like I, I've already covered some of this stuff, and oh, this is going to be a really repetitive one until I dug in. There's so much in here. But, but important, important things that is really important that we know so that when we move forward through life and difficult, dry, hot seasons come, these truths can sustain us in ways that are just unbelievable. So that's what we're here to look at today. I'm going to read verses 15 through 23, pray, and then we will dive right in. It begins in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God, we just ask, Lord, that you would move in this place as we open your word. Lord, I, I could speak all sorts of intellectual fact. We, we could look at knowledge, head knowledge, and we could spew that stuff out all day long. But if your spirit doesn't come and awaken our souls, enlighten our hearts, open our eyes, then we are wasting our time. So we ask that you would move, that the teaching of your word would be in accordance with your word, honoring you, glorifying you, and that your spirit would move and bring these truths to life, bringing fruit into our souls. That, Lord, when we leave this place, we will live this out. That we will know it. Not know it, but know it as we go. 
So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people would say, Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we're moving along in Ephesians. We're going to finish out chapter one today. And we have spent the last few weeks really going through a rather detailed section of Ephesians chapter one. Paul's great and amazing and laborious at times run on sentence that is verses three through 14. It's broken up in our text by commas and periods and things, but in the original language, Paul has one big, long sentence where he just pours out about the Lord's blessings that he has given to the church. And now having come out of that, having talked about our identity as Christians and what God has done in our lives and how God has poured out these great blessings to us as believers, Paul now transitions into a prayer. He has this opening prayer for the people of Ephesus. Ephesus, the area of modern-day Turkey, is where Paul had planted churches previously. Paul now writes this letter from prison. And as he's in prison, he's writing to the churches to teach them some truths about God that he is desperate that they know. And this particular section today is loaded with them. And so Paul has this prayer. It's, it's a thanks prayer. He says in verse 16, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I'm thankful for you all the time. I'm so grateful for you. But then he says, remembering you in my prayers, which is not just a thanksgiving statement, but it's a statement of intercession. So, so what Paul's saying is, I am thankful for you, and I'm praying something for you in my prayers all the time. I'm going to the Lord on your behalf. So what is the prayer? This, this pastor praying for his churches, coming to God, asking something of God on their behalf. What is it he's asking? Well, he's asking that they would know something. Look at verse 17. He's praying that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul's prayer for the Christians, the church in Ephesus, is that God would intervene and you would know him, that you would have knowledge of him. Now, at first you would think, well, I mean, that, that's a good prayer, but also, isn't that already sort of there, Paul? Because he starts out chapter one, Paul, an apostle of Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, they're Christians, they're saints. They're faithful to Christ. So, in other words, they know God. They know God. They know Jesus. They know who he is. They know what he's done. They understand scriptures. Paul's been teaching them. Even when you look at the level of depth that Paul teaches them in the book of Ephesians, you know they had to have some sort of foundation that is pretty significant. They know God. And yet Paul says, I am praying always. I am thankful for you, but I'm also always praying that God would give you knowledge of him. Well, what kind of knowledge? What is it? Well, what he's saying here is that there is something about God that they don't know. That he says literally, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's saying, guys, there's something about God that your eyes are not, they're dim to it. That you don't understand certain things about God and I am constantly praying that you would know these things. Paul's prayer as he moves on in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. There's something Paul wants them and therefore something God wants us to know about God. Now there's something significant we should understand about the word know as it's used here. 
Like there's intellectual knowledge and then there's something called experiential knowledge. Like you can look at a bridge and say, yeah, I know that bridge would carry me as I go across it. But then when you walk across it, now you know it's been tried. It's true. You've experienced it yourself. You know it's safe to walk across. It's no longer a guess. It's something you've experienced yourself. And a lot of times in our culture, even today, and in church culture, experiential knowledge and intellectual knowledge gets pitted against one another. So you can have some people, and you'll find this a lot in, say, uh, maybe uber Pentecostal or charismatic movements. You'll have those that say, all that head knowledge stuff you guys are always talking about over there, that stuff just leads you to pride and getting all puffed up. What you need is a move of God. You need God's spirit to move and awaken something in you. And so they lean towards an experiential knowledge. And so you'll find services that are even crafted and, and, and in some cases even manipulated in such a way to cause people to feel certain things. Because in their belief, what matters is the emotional or experiential knowledge. We need to experience God. That's how we need to know him. And then on the other end, you'll have some who might be on the ultra-orthodox um, or ultra-intellectual uh, um, uh, side of things that would say, that experiential stuff, you can't trust any of that. Look where that's gotten people historically. Man, our feelings are up and down all over the place. And look, you can even orchestrate services to manipulate feelings. So why would you base anything on that? What we need is what we know. And so we forget all that stuff. Let's just open up and we'll, we'll dissect every Greek word and every little everything. And you just dive in. Some of you, that sounds like me some. I swear it's not. It gets worse than me, I assure you. But just we need intellectual knowledge that we can depend on and let that drive us. But here's the thing. In Scripture, if you look at this, you understand that those two things, pitting them against each other, that's a false dichotomy. When Paul says, I want you to know something, he's using a word that might even make us uncomfortable just a little bit because it's the same kind of usage of the word that you see over and over in the Old Testament that refers to a sexual union between a husband and a wife. It'll say Adam and Eve knew one another. Abraham and Sarah knew one another. And it doesn't just mean they knew each other's names. We understand that, right? We'll stay G-rated today, but that's what we're talking about, that, that there's something now that has happened that they now intimately know each other. They don't just know about one another. They intimately know one another. They have experienced one another. They've come together in a significant and intimate way. And when Paul says, I want you to know, these things about God, that's what he's talking about. I want you to experience for yourself, to live out, to walk out these things about God. You don't just know them, you know them. But how does he introduce those things to them? He teaches them intellectually about them. He says, these are the things you need to know about God. But, but what he's counting on is this. He's taking this intellectual knowledge that God has blessed us with through his word. He's taking this revelation of God and he's teaching them because he does want to fill their mind with these things. I mean, think about this. If we want to experience God, you guys might remember years ago that a big thing out there was called transcendental meditation. You guys remember that? Any of you guys remember that term? Transcendental meditation, the whole point of that sort of meditation was you need to get in a place and whatever you do, light your candles, do this with your fingers, home, whatever the thing is. But the goal was to empty your mind. Christian meditation is completely the opposite. Christian meditation seeks to fill your mind with truths that help you navigate different situations in life. 
So Paul comes, he says, church, I want you to know this stuff, like in your soul. I want these things to cause, like affect the way you navigate life. Your life's different knowing these than they would be if you don't, and here's what they are. And so he teaches them intellectually. And this is, this is what we do here at church. We come to the scriptures, we study, we want to teach accurately, but like we even prayed, if God's spirit doesn't move and cause these things to be enlightened in our eyes, to open our spirit to them, then we are wasting our time. And so we want an intellectual knowledge of God that is infused with the spirit of God that causes an intimate experience walking with God. So this is what Paul's asking for. He said, I want you to know these things. And so he says there are three things going through the next couple of verses that he really wants them to know. Not just know, but know. And he says this, number one, he says that you may know the hope that he's called you to. It's in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And we, we covered this a lot over the last couple of weeks. The idea that we have hope in Christ. We have been adopted into the family, forgiven of our sins, redeemed, reconciled back to him. We have incredible hope. We are not hopeless. We are blessed, is what Paul would say. So Paul wants us to know that. Not just know it, but know that. And so because we've spent a few weeks on that, we're not going to focus on that one so much. But, but church, you've got to know that. You have hope. You've been called into hope. I don't care what your situation is. I talked to you about Don Nissen, his memorial service is coming up this Friday. I was there with him at his bedside as he was breathing his last. And I'm telling you, he went with hope. He was not hopeless. He was not terrified. He had hope. And it's real. It's real. And by the way, Christian hope, you understand, it's not like, I hope it works out. <laughs> it's not that kind of, it's not a wish. It's, it's a absolute assurity. I have hope. And the church, Paul wants the church to know you have hope. The second thing, which we've also spent a lot of time on and we won't spend much time on today in verse 18, he says he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so we talked about this a lot last week, that we have a glorious inheritance. Heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace. There's a kid's song back in the 80s, some of you grew up in the church, remember that? I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. That song, not singing it for you, it's terrible. But heaven's amazing. Now, last week, we did walk through something where we were like, look, the, the point of our inheritance, the, the pinnacle, if you will, of our inheritance is not the stuff we get. The pinnacle of our inheritance is we get God. So whether you want to talk about streets of gold or, or houses in heaven or, or glorified bodies that don't experience pain or suffering, all those things are great, but they pale in comparison to the reality that we get God and God gets us. Amen? But let's just admit it, those things are nice too though, aren't they? And when you look at the scriptures, descriptions of those things, God wants us to want them. Now, if the only thing we come to God for is those things, that's idolatry because we're saying, I want God so that I get that. Christian worship is, I want God, whatever he gives me. I want God. But, but just like a good father who wants to buy or give good gifts to his children, 
God's descriptions here, C.S. Lewis even says, our, des- our, our desire for heaven is not too strong, like it's some sinful desire that we want those things. If you look at the descriptions of scripture of the things God has planned for us, you would assume that our desire for these things is too weak. So we have a blessed inheritance in Christ. Heaven will be amazing. Eternity will be amazing. And better than all of that, we get God. So he wants us to know that. He wants you to know. He wants your life to be different knowing that than it would be if it wasn't true. You have hope. You have an inheritance. And the third thing he mentions in verse 19 is where we're going to spend our time today. He wants us to know, have the eyes of our heart enlightened, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to know that there is immeasurable power toward us who believe. Not then, not in heaven, not eventually, today. That we who follow Jesus Christ. And this message is specifically written, this passage specifically written to those who are followers and believers in Jesus Christ, that this power has been extended to you today. The Christian life is not a life that is powerless. The Christian life is one of vast, immeasurable power. The power of God has been extended to every single person that follows Jesus. Now, now, I say that, and most of you, especially if you've been walking with Jesus or learning about Jesus for any length of time in your life, you would go, yeah, I know that. But do you know that? Most of you definitely do not. Most of you would honestly say, I mean, I know that, but that does not describe my experience in being a Christian. I would not describe my experience in being a Christian as one of immeasurable power. My experience of being a Christian, and many times, has just been trying to keep my head above water. My experience, for many of us, of being a Christian has just been existing, trying to learn, failing over and over, feeling weak, not immeasurable power. Pastor, if you're preaching that, you're going to lose me. Because I don't feel any of that. I mean, I know that. I know the scriptures that say that. I know we can do all things through Christ. I know all those passages. But my experience, if, if Paul's saying he wants experiential knowledge of these things to guide our life, I'm out. And sermons like that, for many of us, they come off very uh, philosophical, idealistic, maybe even naive, if not straight up untrue, how they might resonate in our hearts. If we were honest, most of us would say, at least in seasons of our lives, that's how we felt. And yet, the very same people would say, I believe the Bible to be word for word accurate, totally inerrant. I believe everything that it says. So there's a disconnect somewhere, right? If the Bible says that we have this power in Christ, this power in the Holy Spirit, if Paul says we have immeasurable power in our lives, and yet our experience with God hasn't matched any of those things, yet we still believe those things to be true, somewhere there's a disconnect, something's broken. Because it can't be that it's true and not true. So so why don't we feel that? Why don't, when someone says, man, you have power as a Christian, we go, you're right, I feel it. Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I think they go right back to what Paul's saying right here in the text in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Our eyes are dull. They're dull. The scriptures talk about how we see through a glass dimly. We don't see. 
we don't even understand, we don't even realize how infinitely great the Christian life is supposed to be. We miss a ton of it. Why? Well, well, one reason would be sin. I mean, sin has a way of absolutely clouding our vision. Sin, it has a way of separating us from God. It separates us from an understanding of God. It dulls our senses to the things that God is doing in our life, to the promptings of the Spirit. And sin turns our focus inward. It's us living the way we want to live. And so instead of looking outside of what God is doing in our lives, we're looking inward. We are in control, and there is no power in us. And so for many of us, the problem is is that sin has separated us from that immeasurable power of God that the scriptures say is active in our lives. The second thing might be, and this is going to come up here in just a few minutes as we go through these things, but the second thing is we, we tend to have a failure to understand the realities of spiritual warfare. Um, if we only knew, if we only understood the hordes of hell that are opposed us every second of every day, that that stuff is real. But because we don't understand the power of the enemy, then we don't really have a good understanding of the power of our Savior and our conqueror over the enemy. How could we when we don't even realize what God is saving us from on a day-to-day basis? But we'll dig into that in a minute. And the third thing is this, and this is really what Paul's going to go on to break down in the remainder of the text. We have a lack of understanding regarding Jesus after the resurrection. We know a lot about Jesus before he died. We know what his life was like. We know how he taught the disciples. We know all sorts of things there. We know he's coming again. Some of us know tons about Jesus prophetically. Most people don't really know or understand a lot about what Jesus was like post-resurrection, specifically what God did in and to Christ when he rose him from the dead. And that's a failure because texts like this and especially Books like Colossians reach to that as really teaching us about ourselves, what God is doing in our own lives. And so because we don't really understand, we know he rose from the dead, we know he's in heaven, we know he's coming back, but the realities of who Jesus is about the power that is in Christ that God put through Christ when he rose him from the dead, we don't really understand that a lot. And that is a a very unfortunate thing because that is what this text is is about. And Paul's going to say, that's what the power that we have is like, as you're going to see in just a minute. Now, before we begin, I want you to notice something about this power. Paul's prayer is not that there's this pool of power over here, go get it. He's not like, church, I just pray that you would know that there's power available, you would ask for it and go get it. That's not his prayer. His prayer is that we would have our eyes open to see that it's already here. This is not some second baptism or some second help. This isn't moving from JV to varsity Christianity. It's none of those things. This is God has extended power to every single believer right where they are today. We just don't know it. And even if we know it, we don't know it because we'd live differently if we did. And so this is what he's going to talk about. So again, we have great hope. We have great inheritance. And the third thing, we have great and immeasurable power. So what kind of power? What does that mean, power? Like 
Superman power, superhero power? Like what kind of power, Jeff? Or is it just like cheesy power, some Christian analogy thing that you're gonna throw out, but it's not really anything real or tangible to me? What are you doing? What do you mean by power? Well, this is what he says. The immeasurable greatness of his power, verse 19, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wants us to know some things about the power God has extended to believers and to teach us about them, to help us understand about them. He's pointing to what God did in and through Christ in the resurrection. You see this here in verse 19. He says, according to the working of his great might. When it says according to, it means extended down. So, so in other words, this. The power that God exhibited and gave and worked through Jesus in the resurrection has been extended down to followers of Jesus. The same power. So it's important to understand what God did with Christ at the resurrection because God is saying, this is you too. You gotta live it. And so we're gonna walk through these things, the power that God has given us, and there are five things. Can you put that slide up? It's really wordy. If you're a note taker, I hope you all are. I'm gonna leave this up as long as we can because it's wordy. But this is five things this text tells us about the power that God has made available toward us, as he puts it. Paul gives us five things to look at concerning the power of God toward us. Number one, in verse 19, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power of God toward us is like the power God worked when he rose Christ from the dead. That's number one. Number two, in verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power of God toward us is great, like the power he worked in Christ when he seated him at his right hand. We're gonna unpack these in just a second. Number three, the power of God toward us is great, like the power he worked in Christ when he put him in dominion of everything. Verse 21, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion above every name that is named. The power of God is great, like when he put Christ in dominion over everything. Number four, verse 22 says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the power of God, number four, is great, like the power he worked in Christ when he put all things under his feet and made him head of the church. It's a wordy one. And then number five, the power of God toward us is great, like the power he worked when he made the church Christ's body and fullness. It's from verse 23, which says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, now let's go back, and we're going to leave this up as long as we can, uh, but we got some other texts I'm going to show you. But um, let's unpack what these things mean, because those things look like, you can look at that and go, that's just like heady, wordy kind of stuff. But Paul's going, look, I, I want God, I'm praying that God would take these things about Christ and open the eyes of your soul to realize that this is you. He's pleading with us to know these things. So let's unpack them. Number one, the power of God is great like the power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
We get this from verse 19 and 20. It says specifically, as he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So let's think about it. When God raised Christ from the dead, think about this. He raised Christ from the dead never, ever to die again. Ever. Ever to die again. And that same power worked in Christ has now been extended to you. What does that mean, Jeff? It means this. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, hear me now, you will never die. You will never die. And I mean every word I say. I'm not getting creative. You followers of Jesus, because the power that was worked in Christ has been extended to you, will never die. You're like, Jeff, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say, because didn't you just say you're doing a memorial service Friday? Yes. Don didn't die. That's what I'm saying. And you say, that's just, go ahead and work it out somehow, Jeff. Get clever. Show us how you're doing this, where he really did die, but you're trying to make it sound like not. Everybody dies, Jeff. Do they? Do they? Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Ephesians 2, right here in our very text, the very next chapter, look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been made alive with Christ. And Christ was raised from the dead never to taste death again. So followers of Jesus will never die. But Jeff, they do. They absolutely do. Okay, think about this. Jesus went to a memorial service. Jesus went to a funeral. Do you guys remember Lazarus? Lazarus was a dear friend of Jesus's. And Jesus went to that memorial service, and as he was coming, Lazarus had been dead for a few days. And Lazarus' sister comes up, Martha, and she says to him, she says what? Lord, if you had been here, if you'd just been here, you could have rescued him, and you could have raised him from the dead. I know that you could have. Where were you? Why weren't you here? And what does Jesus say? Guys, if you'll go to the John 11 quote, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, there's that word, I know, I understand, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, that is. And Jesus said to her, look what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then look, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then look what he says, do you believe this? It's just like what Paul's saying. I know that you know this. I know that you know he's going to raise in the last day, but I'm telling you right now, I'm the resurrection. He will never die who believes in me. Do you know this? Like, do you know this? Is what he says. Jeff, people die. Hospitals, people die. No, here's what's the, the absolute truth for the believer in Jesus Christ. As you might lay there on your deathbed, 
as your blood carries that last ounce of oxygen to those organs for the last time, as that heart pumps for the last time, as you breathe for the last time, as those, whatever goes on in our head fires for the last time, understand something. There will never be a second for a believer in Jesus Christ when you are out of fellowship with God and don't exist. Not one millisecond. Corinthians, oh death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been defeated. And that which is to be the end for the believer is not your end. It's been beaten. Colossians tells us that we have been raised in victory with Christ. So death, instead of being this end that was determined and supposed to end us, it becomes a doorway into eternal life with with God forever. The thing that was meant to destroy you ends up serving you and becomes the best thing that will ever happen to you. You will never die. Your last breath here will be your first breath there. We can call it death all we want, but the reality is we haven't even lived yet. That's the reality. You will never die. How much time do you spend worrying about that? Are you ever in fear over things like cancer or disease? Maybe some of you are getting older in years and it becomes easier to go, man, I'm, I, I got less years ahead of me than I got behind me and the last 10 went awfully fast and what if I only have 10 more and fear can creep in as you start dealing with those things, right? Paul would say this, I want you to know. Like, not just know, you gotta know. You will never die. Now feel the power of that. Christian, you will never die. Do you feel the power in that? Like, how would you live if you knew that to be true? If there was not one ounce of fear of death in you at all, what would your life look like? How freeing would it be? How powerful would you be? God says the same power enacted in Jesus that rose him from the dead is active now in you. You will never die. Know this, church. Number two, the power of God toward us is great, like the power worked in Christ when he seated him at his right hand. It's from verse 20. It says right there, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God has extended that same power to us. The same power that exalted Jesus and put him in this position of authority at his right hand has been extended to you. As God exalted Jesus, he has also exalted you. He has. This is true. He wants us to know this. Look further down again in Ephesians 2. We just read, let's read it again, verse four. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then what? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As God exalted Jesus into that position of authority, he has exalted you too. This is true. This is what this means, believers. It is only a matter of time until you inherit everything, everything. When you look at your life through that lens, how much time do we spend worrying about nothing when God soon is going to give us everything? 
How often do we feel insignificant, overlooked, worthless, ignored, unloved, when God has exalted you with Christ, as joint heirs with Christ, you will inherit everything. Look at Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is just a matter of time. You who follow Jesus will rule with him forever. You will inherit everything. Paul says, I want you to know that. Not just like, yeah, I know that. I know that's probably true. I don't, I don't know. I want you to, in your soul, know that. How tightly would we cling to things of this world, understanding that that's what's coming? How much time would we spend focusing and worrying about ourselves if we understood what God is already doing in and around us? That power is here Now, it's absolutely true, we're just dull to it. Number three, the power of God toward us is great, like the power he worked in Christ when he put him in dominion. This is a little different. Verse 21, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God's power toward you is great, like the same power enacted in Christ when he put Satan under Christ's foot. Now, this is huge. If you look forward, if you turn a page or so to Ephesians chapter 6, you see Paul use some of the same language to describe something significant that he's talking about. Verse 12 of chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christian, Believer in Jesus, follower of Jesus Christ. There are hordes of demons from the very pit of hell that hate you. That's real. They hate you. They hate your children. They hate your worship. They hate your faith. They hate everything about your life and the very fact that you've been created in the image of God, they hate. The fact that as a believer, God is molding you into the closer and closer in the image of Christ, they hate. And everything that was done to Jesus on the cross, all that beat, all that wrath, all that, that's what they want to do to you. Spiritual warfare is not Satan wanting to trip you as you walk down the street. He wants to destroy you. There are real supernatural forces that come against us every single day that are at war with our puny natural selves. And on our own, we, and I mean this literally, do not stand a snowball's chance in hell against it. And yet we keep existing. And yet we keep living. And we keep waking up. And we keep breathing. How is that possible? Because God is actively loving you. That's why. It will be amazing when we get to heaven and we get to see the things that God is protecting us from. Things we can't even possibly perceive or understand right now. Things that are absolutely real. While you sleep, God is loving you. 
while you rest, God is loving you. While you laugh with your family and enjoy God's creation, God is at war with your enemy, saving you from the hounds of hell that seek to destroy everything about you. My favorite story about this is in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives you this little window into the reality of how these things happen. There's a, there's a story in Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel, the prophet, is struggling. He's struggling about Israel's future. He's struggling about the people's future. And he's just, he's weeping and he's mourning and he is really struggling. And for 21 straight days, for three straight weeks, he's fasting and praying and weeping and just struggling nonstop for three weeks. And it says in Daniel chapter 10, take a look here at um, verse, well, I'm going to start in verse 9. That text there starts, I think, in verse 10. But verse 9 says, and then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands. And he said to me, Daniel, man greatly loved Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So here's Daniel. He's suffering. He's struggling. He's praying for three weeks. God, are you even listening I mean, week one goes by, week two goes by. How many of us would have quit? And yet he's still praying, still seeking the Lord. And at the end of three weeks, this angel appears to him and says, Daniel, you are greatly loved by God. And don't fear, Daniel, from the moment your prayer began, when you first bowed your head before the Lord and began to pray, I was sent to you. Which my next question would be, what took you so long? Like, did you stop it in and out on the way up? Like, what is going on, man? Where have you been? And look how the text goes on. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for this vision is for days yet to come. He says, I was dispatched to come to answer your prayer the day that you began to pray. But the prince of the power, the prince of Persia withstood me. There was a legitimate, real, actual battle that was going on over Daniel. Satan did not want that hope coming to Daniel. Satan did not want Daniel's prayer answered. Satan wanted Daniel to stay there on his face thinking that God does not hear him and to leave him in depression and despair for the rest of his life until he died. But God would have none of it. And says an archangel was even dispatched. Like they're sending in the Navy SEALs. You know what I'm saying? Like God's going, no. Daniel's important to me, send in the reserves. And here comes the cavalry coming and charging in. There is real spiritual warfare that goes on around us 24-7. You have no idea what you are being saved from. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead, put him in authority over Satan, is active in your life this very day, putting Satan and his minions under your feet. Not little yellow cute minions, demonic minions under your feet. The power of God is great. Number four. The power of God toward us is great like the power he worked in Christ when he put all things under his feet. 
Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the power of God towards you is also great in the same way that he put Jesus over everything. What what do you mean? I, I mean, everything is under the feet of Christ. Weather, history, kings, political powers, rulers, jobs, bosses, friends, enemies, nature, beasts, stars, galaxies, stress, fears, demons, every single thing that does or has ever existed in the history of the world is under Christ. And he says, that's the power that has now been extended to you. So why do you fear? Why do you allow fear over that job to consume you? Why do you let fear over that relationship consume you? Why do you let anxiety over whether you're going to be alone or whether you're going to be stuck with him or whatever the case may be for the rest of your life? Why do you live in anxiety and fear over all of these things when the same power that put Christ over them has been extended to you? You are the church. Christ is your head. That power is yours. Nothing can touch you without God's permission. And the things that touch us with God's permission only seek to serve us and make us stronger in the end anyway. We have immeasurable power protecting us. Immeasurable power. We see videos like ISIS and we're struck with fear. That's nothing. That is a pimple on the back of the neck of God compared to the power of God. That is nothing. God loves you greatly, and you do not need fear anything that could come against you. That's the kind of power that has been given to you. What would your life look like if you believed that? How much more joy would we experience as believers if we didn't have that kind of fear day in and day out? How how little anxiety would we have? Wouldn't that be great? Amen? The people that have anxiety didn't say amen because they'd be anxious that other people would know that they have anxiety. So <laughs> you just were like, I'm not saying nothing like that. That's the power of God given to you today. And number five, the power of God toward us is great. Like the power he worked when he made the church, Christ's body and fullness. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power at work in you is the same power that seeks to fill the world with the presence of God. Now, go back to the beginning just for a minute. We're almost done here. Adam and Eve, in perfect harmony, in fellowship with God, God's presence is around them. It's harmony, it's shalom, it's what we are made for, it's what we all long for, and we blew it, right? But since that day, God is rebuilding and reworking a what? a new heaven and a new earth. And as we read into God's plan and what he's doing, we get into the book of Revelation. What is it that we find? The definitive factor, the thing that sets this new heaven and new earth apart from this fallen earth that we live in now is the fullness of God in it. In Revelation 21, 23, it says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. In other words, the earth is full of the glory and presence of God and all wickedness, all enemy, all the effects of sin have been pushed out. There is no more darkness 
everything is lit. There's no shadows. There's no nothing. There is not one spot anywhere in which the presence of God does not fill. And he says, that's not just in the future. That could be now. Because the church is the body of Christ charged with taking the glory of God into the world everywhere and living that thing out now. We are a tangible expression of the presence of God in the world around us. So why do we spend so much time worrying about what's going to happen to us from all of our enemies? How much fear should we really be in as we see political changes coming against the church? Honestly. How much fear should we be in about anything, cultural changes, what people think of us, what the culture says about us, religious liberties, any of those things? Honestly, should we be concerned? Of course. As responsible citizens and people who fight for good and truth and justice, of course we should. But should we fear the changes like we could lose? Absolutely not. Because God's word has already promised, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be no more darkness anywhere, no shadows, no night, no nothing. The glory of God will fill every square millimeter of the new heaven and the new earth. And we have been given that exact same power as the church to do that now. So if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. That stuff that we read in those texts, it's real. It's true. You have immeasurable power. You do not need live in fear anymore. You don't need to worry what people will think of you if you follow Jesus the way he's called you to. You don't need to live in fear of what your boss is going to do if he were to fire you or you're to lose your job. You don't need to live in fear of what if I live the rest of my life alone or what if the person I'm with never comes back or leaves me. Or You don't need to live in fear of anything because the God of heaven and earth who rose Jesus Christ from the dead has given power to you in your life to live. To live, not just to know it, but to know it so that it becomes the fuel for everything that we do. It becomes the motivation for everything we do. It becomes everything that we do, not just mere intellectual knowledge. And all of these things are made possible how? Because the God of infinite power divested himself of all of it that he would humble himself and come to the cross on our behalf, become totally powerless, become totally weak, become totally open, and allow the things that happen to him, allow the world to come against him to kill him so that we might live and be resurrected with him. What a great and merciful and loving God we serve. Just like that angel said to Daniel, we can say as well, Do not fear, Daniel. Do not fear, church. You are greatly loved. Church, you are greatly loved. You are loved. And not just by some, anybody. You're loved by God himself. You are in his hand and no one can pluck you out. Do you know that? I want to take a moment now to pray that you know that. And then we'll close. Will you guys stand with me? Sam's going to close us in a a chorus of hymn. Let's just pray before we do that. 
God, we read these truths and we can look at this stuff and celebrate and be excited by it and nod our head in agreement with us, but God, this text says that the purpose of it is that we know these things in our gut, that it becomes not just head knowledge, but something we experience as we live, and that cannot happen apart from your spirit. So God, I pray that you would take these very words that were shared, this text that we have read, and that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead would now move amongst the hearts of everyone in this place, that you would enlighten our eyes, God, that we would no longer be dull to your purposes, no longer dull to your power, no longer dull to your plan. God, would you fight against the enemy that seeks to fill us with fear and doubt and anxiety? May you have and show us your power over those things. May you fight against the enemy that might fill us with laziness or discontentment. The things that cause us to look at ourselves, to look inward. Instead, Lord, may we look out to what you are doing in us. And I pray, God, that we might follow you. That you might be our strength, our might, our motivation. That even in our weakness, we realize that we are made strong in you. And I pray, God, that we would know these things, that you are the resurrection and the life. So may our lives be hidden in you as we follow you. God, will you cement these things in our hearts and help us to exhibit them to others, we pray in Jesus' name.